If it is your first time, we hope it's not your last time. Um, and I'm going to attempt not to make that happen, all right? Hopefully you'll be back. I'm excited today to continue a series. Um, really, uh, we, we've called it Mixed Emotions, but really it's just taken a few weeks to look at our inner life. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands with my next question. I'm certainly not going to ask for you to write a prayer report or any kind of report about what's going on in the inside, but, but just a... Just a, a a mental question for you, yourself, and I. How many of you have noticed that from time to time, your emotions get you in trouble? Yeah. yeah. I just heard it all the time. Amen. We are with you. No shame, right? We, we have those seasons where our emotions um, can get us into trouble. I want to say this, uh, not, not a, about Hillside. I was about to say, you know, as, as a church, we believe, but really what you'll find in the, the Gospels um, and how the Gospel does change us and transform us is Jesus invites us into a lifestyle of obedience, a lifestyle of obedience and a discipleship and transformation that influences every arena of our lives. And um, sometimes perhaps you've been part of some movements, even, even good godly movements, where uh, the emphasis was on maybe one particular area. And the emotions, it didn't really matter about your emotions. It didn't matter how you treated people. It didn't matter how you talked to others. It didn't matter if you carried the fruit of the Spirit or not. You loved Jesus, or so you thought. And that's important to love Jesus, but it's also important to understand that we are in the company of one who changes lives. We're in the company of one who, while he is relentless in his love, his mercy, and grace, he is also pursuing transformation in our lives. And he's not looking for behavior modification. I want to encourage you not to have that thought. He's not looking just to change your behavior. Jesus always starts with the heart. He's looking to resurrect the dead, so to speak. He is turning us, speaking of baptisms next week, he's burying us in the old way of living, our old thoughts, our old habits, our old um, ways of responding and reacting. And he welcomes us in new life to carry forth what's called the fruit of the Spirit. And I preached on the fruit of the Spirit around this time last year. We took, we took all nine of them, took nine weeks through that. Um, but you can save yourself all the trouble by meeting with the Lord this week and reading Galatians 5. 22 through 24, you can read and get a glimpse of all of those nine fruit. And here's the deal. God wants you to bear that. He wants you to bear them in your life. And when it comes to emotions, um, again, not going to take a poll. I'm not going to um, in, invite you to raise your hand. I just simply want to ask, does anybody else make excuses for your emotions? Okay. All right. To, to any of you, I mean, again, I'm just, let's just talk about me. I'll, t- I'll take it off the table for you. Let's just talk about me. Um, you know, I have found myself kind of making excuses. And uh, come on, you, when you're a pastor, you get pretty good with it. You know that there are other verses besides the fruit of the Spirit. So you like, you bring up like Bible stories, bring up like, you know, some things Jesus did, like try to, you, you, inside, you know, you're cherry picking some of his stories to justify some of your behavior. But, you know, you're like, hey, it's in the Bible. 
It must be okay. And the, re the reality is uh, that doesn't always work when it has to do with our emotions, okay? God's inviting us to be a, a people that is loving, that is kind, that is generous, that is passionate for Him and passionate for others. Never forget, we serve a Savior who gave us this crazy, radical command. Love your enemies. If I was on the keys, I'd go womp, womp, womp. But it's, it's in there. It's an important passage. And today, I want to talk about a response that you are capable of giving. I want to talk about a response that perhaps you weren't um, modeled. Perhaps you weren't ever encouraged. Um, Perhaps if you were into sports like I was at a young age, you would think this response is laughable. But I want to give some credence. I want to give, some, uh, I want to give a sermon for this particular response. It is called a gentle response. It's called a gentle response. Some of you, your jaws just dropped. Your eyes got really big. I see you. You didn't know that was possible. I'm here to tell you it's possible. Gentleness is one of the fruits of the Spirit. It's also one of the appropriate characteristics that Paul, who wrote Galatians, also wrote in Colossians. But before we get there, two stories. The first story is Jesus. And some of his disciples, of which I am familiar with, with their response. This is in Luke chapter 9. It's a short story. Four powerful verses. Chapter 9 of Luke, verses 51 through 55. As the time approached for him, being Jesus, to be taken up to heaven. His earthly ministry is coming to a conclusion. He's been doing what only he can do. Walking and yielding to the Spirit. Walking and yielding, empowered by the Spirit, changing lives, loving people, caring for the marginalized, advancing and expanding the kingdom of God. It's been incredible. But he had disciples with him who didn't always understand and were still learning and growing and discovering who Jesus was. And he never missed a coachable moment. Aren't you grateful for the Holy Spirit? If we yield to him, we never miss a coachable moment. And as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. So, well, well hold up one second. I couldn't beat you guys. If we can go back to those. So, here's what's happening. Jesus would go into Samaria. Your Jewish rabbis did not go into Samaria. So Jesus, you're familiar with this. He's got his GPS ready. And Samaritan, or Samaria, in this moment is where he's headed. Why? I couldn't tell you other than he's the king of kings and lord of lords. He saw fit to minister there and make a lasting difference. And he did that. He's done that prior in the Gospels. He's been to Samaria before. And the disciples, naturally, you won't read this, they're a little on edge because they had grown up hearing about how Samaria was a terrible place, how the Samaritans were terrible people, and how you don't associate or uh, exchange money or exchange trade or do anything with Samaritans. 
You've heard the story of the Good Samaritan. They would laugh. They would think, Jesus, that's a joke. There are no good Samaritans, okay? So Samaritans equal bad. Jesus is like, hey, in typical Jesus fashion, let's go there. That sounds like a party. And so he's mapped it out. They're headed in that direction. And then just like the disciples knew what happened, we get verse 53. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. Well, why is that a big deal? I'm glad you asked. Jerusalem is the centerpiece. It is the foundation of Jewish worship. And one of the religious beefs was Samaritans did not worship in Jerusalem. And they had several chips on their shoulder about that. And so when they heard you're going to Jerusalem, they're like, they took it as an affront. They took it as an offense. And so instead of the welcoming banners, they got the boo banners going. They have the yelling, the chanting, they're throwing things you can imagine. And when the disciples saw this, a couple of them got a good idea. They had personal character that was coming inside, and now it was about to come on the outside. And they got a brilliant idea, or so I thought. When the disciples, James and John, who are affectionately called the sons of thunder, saw this, they asked, Lord, we're just thinking. We've just been praying, <laughs> fasting, and uh, we've got some scripture. We've, we've, we've got Elijah doing some awesome things. You know, we're thinking about Moses, who had some major anger problems as well. And we're just thinking, hey, you're, you're a little gentle in spirit. You're a little high on the mercy. We think it's time for a lesson in thunder. <laughs> and you can imagine the Thundercats theme music, shout out to the 80s, is playing. All right. Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? And then this line, this wonderful line. And Jesus turned and slapped them in the face. That is Pastor Paul translation. Jesus, not, not angrily, gently. That's a gen you ever had a gentle slap? That was a gentle slap. All right. But Jesus turned and rebuked them. He turned and rebuked them. He turned and rebuked them. And what Jesus is expressing here is that your emotions are leading to actions that are going to have consequences outside of what the kingdom of heaven is doing in the here and now. And Jesus is wanting to disciple them and pastor them in an important arena of their life. As a rabbi, your goal, your aim was to lead your disciples. And the disciples' aim was to become like their rabbi. If you were to fast forward from this moment, about anywhere from 40 to 50 years, you'd know that James and John would give their lives for the vision of the kingdom of heaven. There was transformation that had to take place in their life, and they had to learn Yes, to be reactive, but to be reactive in the right ways. And gentleness doesn't get a lot of attention in our culture these days. 
But gentleness is a characteristic of the kingdom of God. It's a characteristic of your and my Savior. That He modeled it intentionally for us to model. Gentleness, if we were to spiderweb it, we see story after story after story all throughout the Scriptures. In fact, Psalm um, 103, verses 8 through 10, it references... Exodus 34, and in Exodus 34, we get the John 3.16 of the First Testament. And really, Exodus 34, it's this moment in Israel's history where Moses is on the mountain meeting with God. And at the very moment, if you were to do the time lapse, you would see two scenes taking place. The father is meeting with Moses. He's giving him direction, giving him understanding. And the Israelites are down building a golden calf, an idol. And the disconnect is staggering. Because on Exodus 34, God is revealing, the Father is revealing His nature. And that verse is, is sprinkled all throughout the First Testament. And here it is. Psalm 103, 8 through 10 is one of the sprinkling places. It's one of the stopping places, one of the pieces from Exodus 34. It says this, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will He harbor His anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve, or repay us according to our iniquities. Again, I can't propose what your response is, but my anger is always giving somebody what they deserve, at least in my mind. Like my anger, you can take it into any particular arena where I'm angry. I'm usually giving people what they deserve, my poor dog has been on the other side of my anger and has received the wrath of being under my feet. Kelly and I, we are in a nursing home stage with our dog. He is 17 and a half years uh, old. What is it? Oh, you're right. He is 17 and a half going on 17. Yeah, I stand. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> which in dog years he is and um he's he's been on the other side and and when i respond i'm justified i'm justified <laughs> no one in the house thinks i'm justified but i am justified come on in my arguments if i get angry if i get upset i am always justified in my response anger tells us a lie and we respond accordingly. Anger tells us that we can expedite the process if we can just get with it. Or not if we, if they can just get with it. Anger tells us we're better in control than relenting control. Anger tells us grace only lasts so long and they are misapplying and have disproportionately thought grace is longer than it should be. And here we go, baby. <laughs> Anger tells us that 
They're not, but they should be perfect people. Anger will get in our head, and if we're not careful, it will get us to respond too quickly. Gentleness isn't even on the scene when anger shows up. And anger I've found, I can't speak on your behalf, but anger I've found in my life, it can hurt relationships, it can hurt friendships. And when I'm angry, I think that I am speaking with such distinct clarity as to be heard appropriately. But it is like placing earplugs and turning on classical opera to the person that's receiving my anger. They can't hear a thing because I have entirely shut them down. John and James could not see the Samaritan people as created in the image of God. John and James could not see the people across the path from them as the beloved created in the image of God. They were seeing with an old lens, an old understanding, an old revelation of who God was and who God is. And it may have served them well for a time, but now the Messiah, the Savior, the Rabbi of the world was in their sphere and pulling them in a new direction. And he was offering them a way of responding and reacting. If you have struggled with anger, you're welcome here. You're in a good place. The kingdom of God welcomes and opens its hands to you. Anger doesn't keep you on the outside looking in. Anger is an opportunity for us, for you, for me, to be transformed into the likeness of Christ. But it requires us to do like Jesus would with Peter when in anger. You know, at least John and James are just making a suggestion. Peter's over here cutting off people's ears in the Garden of Gethsemane, all right? Like, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> in my mind is gently, abruptly, and straightforwardly saying, lay down your knife. This isn't how we do things in the kingdom. And he's making a case, if you will, for following the truth and the way of who God is and who God has called for us to be. Um, where I want to take us briefly is just examine a little bit. I, I took us there briefly last week. Maybe spend just a, a bit longer here this week, but... Anger is a response, if we, if we break it down in its simplest form, anger is a response to an unmet expectation. Um, some are just small moments. Some are just lighter moments. Some moments carry great gravity in our lives, right? Like, how many of you know, a little traffic anger is different than a relational breakup anger that you may experience, right? There's just moments that are, are richer or deeper, hold more of a gravity. But at, at, their, very, at their very foundation is an unmet expectation. And here's, here's what is happening with us. While we are people in process, being transformed into Christ, this is happening as well. Whenever there's an unmet expectation, it causes a, a space. It causes a gap between us and them. And it's an unmet expectation. They, they have missed the mark. We all miss the mark. 
But in that moment, we are kind of <laughs> judge, jury, and everything to their behavior. And it's an unmet expectation. Now, here's what gets filled in that gap. Like, even again, like I said, our excuses and explanations and at times our Bible verses. It, it gets filled in there. It's, it's who we are and who we've become. It's who we are, and it's who we've become. I remember as a highly competitive soccer player, um, when I would have an unmet expectation, a.k.a. the referee would make a bad call. (laughs) I bypassed talking or explaining kindly to him, and I went straight to skadoosh and shot that ball about 50 feet not 50 feet. I was angry. What was that referee experiencing? He was getting (laughs) who I was and who I was becoming mushed in to that moment. There's no excuses for the response. There's no explaining for the responses. People are getting who we are and who we've become. And if we're not faithful to continue learning and growing and abiding, not striving, but abiding in the vine as Jesus has called for us to, we won't be transformed into the likeness of Christ. Paul invites the people, Colossians 3. Some of you are like, when is he getting there? Right now. Colossians 3 is what we're invited to put into that space. Colossians 3 is what we're invited to to place in that gap. And I'm going to take the long form, the long form approach. I'm going to read these verses. This is what Paul says, Colossians 3. We're just going to take our time and read 13 verses. You got it in you. I can see it. You had an extra hour of rest. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. And if... James and John were reading this. They're like, yeah, yeah, they're elbowing each other. You remember when we thought, hey, let's call down fire from heaven to blow these people up. They're like, yeah, I remember. It's so great, man, to think how far we've come. And they're getting all teary-eyed. And anyhow, okay, I'm moving. But now you must rid yourselves. But now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger? Rage? Malice? Slander and all the carefully curated stress words you have crafted. Get them from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices 
and here it is, have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge, in the image of its creator. Here, there is no Gentile or Jew. Paul's saying, look, here's the deal. It's not the exterior that quantifies. It's the interior. You're not to respond by your ethnicity or by your personal history or by your family of origin. No, Paul is eradicating all of that. He says, look, in this space, in this holy allegiance and alliance with the creator of the universe, the creator God who revealed himself in Christ Jesus, the Messiah, and now fills you with his very Holy Spirit, he would say, there's no Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. And then 12 through 13, Lord, write these on our hearts. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance with someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. That's what Paul is inviting us to place in that space of unmet expectations. You can't control the other person. You can't control how they will respond. But in a similar sense, if you can imagine, as Joshua wrote, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We write that over our hearts, okay? As for me, as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's what Paul's asking. He says, put away the old, the old, and embrace and step into the new. And if you, if you find that difficult, can I just encourage you, you're not alone. If you find it uh, easier to be angry, hey, have I told you you're welcome here? You know, just don't get angry, but you're welcome here, all right? <laughs> um, there, I, I, I don't want to go too much on a sideway here, but I just want to bring to your attention something that I have found helpful. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a form of understanding reactions, behavior, oneself. It's, it's kind of propagated with, with some Christian therapists, also therapists that aren't Christian. And they, they talk about, there was a, a, a pastor, he's in Texas, Pastor Robert Creech. He wrote a good book called Family Systems in Congregational Life. And it's, I have a love-hate relationship with it, I'll just tell you, because it, it kind of, for me, it took away some excuses and anytime you take away my excuses for unmet expectations, like, I need a cooling off period. All right, so uh, I can get irritated. But he says this in his book, Family Systems and, and Congregational Life. He says this. He says, working with families and individuals in his practice. He talks about this observer in D.C., this um, psychologist, Murray Bone. He said, he observed that human beings consistently exhibit only a handful of basic emotional responses to increased anxiety. He says, when we feel stressed, anxious, or threatened, we automatically revert to reactions that thousands of years of experience have deeply embedded in our brains. I was okay so far, but then I felt like he was calling me out, and here's where I'm going. 
They frame four responses that people have during an unmet expectation. They frame it as anxiety, and notice these four. Again, uh, we just talk about me, we're not talking about you, so if it helps, great. It says, number one, people jump into what's called conflict. He said, in any family relationship, and he would even propose at times in a church setting, <gasps> believe it or not, conflict gets on the scene. He'll say that, that people dive into conflict. We fight. So some people, anger just comes kind of easy. They, they, they like it. Others, your anger takes a different approach. You flee. It's cold shoulder, distancing. Others, they overfunction or underfunction. By overfunction, you try to fix the situation too quickly. You rush people along. You overfunction or you underfunction like you tap out and be like, it doesn't matter. And on the inside, you're like, it really matters. And then the fourth, this was the most annoying, calls about emotional triangles. And that's where we pull others in to our unmet expectation. You know, a conversation may happen with one of your favorite people on your phone. You call them. Conversation may or may not begin with, you won't believe what they said. You won't believe what just happened today. And what are they talking about? They're, they're talking about, here's the deal. How all of humanity, myself included, our old self, as Paul says, we fill that gap. But what Murray Bowen hinted at but never quite experienced, I don't believe personally, is raised in Christ, is new life, is the empowering power of the Holy Spirit within us that leads us not only unto salvation, but unto sanctification, which is a transformation into Christ's likeness. That the warnings in our car, so to speak, how many of you know a warning is important? And if you're like me, Six months later, that warning is even more important than it was. Like, emptying the gas tank is a real thing. I'm just going to say it. Like, some of you, that's not a problem. It's a problem. You got to fill the tank. And some of us, God's been warning us about our anger. Some of us, he's like, dude, you're still circling the mountain. I want you to enter the promised land. You don't have to be in this wilderness forever. You got to give it up. You got to give it up. And here's the deal. You know, God is so patient. He's so graceful. Because many of us might have grown up in a home where gentleness was laughed at. The Greeks, the Romans, gentleness is not on their ethics literature. But for the Christians in the empire, they overturned the empire with gentleness. Martyr, martyrdom, not fighting for their rights, but understanding who Christ is, that ultimately God will have his way and have his work. Gentleness. I have two things in closing. I highlighted this. Gentleness reveals and anger reveals. So I have gentleness reveals, okay? Some of the deeper, let's just... Let's just quickly go into the deep end of the pool. We, won't, we don't have floaties, so we won't hang there long. We'll be quick. Gentleness reveals trust in God's sovereignty. 
Gentleness reveals trust in God's sovereignty. He's in control. Colossians, different chapter, chapter 1. He's holding all things together. We can respond gently. Jesus doesn't have to blow up the Samaritans because he knows they're beloved of God. He says, though, we don't want to expedite or jeopardize this. They're beloved as well, sons and daughters. So no, don't blow people up, James and John. (laughs) Trust in God's sovereignty. Trust in God's sufficiency. Trust in God's sufficiency. God is the ultimate CPA. He's the ultimate budget keeper. If you think about this, God is never anxious. He never panics. He's fully sufficient. So Christ calls for us to cast all of our anxiety onto him, not to weaponize our anxiety with anger. Trust his sufficiency. God has already made uh, space for other people's mistakes. He's made space for other people's transformation. And when it influences you, you can trust him with it. Oh, God's all sufficient. God will make a way. God's a miracle worker. God just does miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. Million little miracles. He's all sufficient. He's sovereign. Trust in God's timing. Man, I think about those three, and I think about my angry responses. That unmet expectation. Almost all of my unmet expectations can (laughs) be calmed down by knowing God's all-sufficient, amen? Knowing that God is sovereign. And when people attack or people, uh, you know, get difficult or people get hard, you know what? Even then, God's still on his throne. When circumstances rise up and we just want to rage, as some songs may say, we don't have to. We can yield to Christ. Trust in God's sovereignty. Trust in God's sufficiency. Trust in God's timing. Anger reveals. Here's here's what anger reveals. For me, my desire for control. My desire for control. My desire for vengeance. My desire for, for vengeance. Like, I really like for these people to fail, God. Can we make that happen? God, how they treated me, I'd really like you to bring some thunder from heaven. Amen. All right? My desire for vengeance. My desire for expediency. Like patience when I'm angry gets thrown out the window. And that's what happens. That's, that, that's in our old way. And here's the beautiful thing. God is wanting to transform us. And he invites us into it. If you're waiting for him to make you less angry, you're going to be waiting for a long time. God always works in interactive relationships, so he partners with you. You take a step, he takes 20 steps. You take an inch, he takes a thousand steps. I mean, he is always wanting to partner with our faith and with our relationship. And I think I have found for myself a old spiritual discipline that works wonders. Confession. Who would have thought the brother of Jesus was onto something? Confess your sins one to another 
that you may be healed. I have found that in the middle of an unmet expectation, I might be sinning. Now, it may take me a while because I, again, have good excuses. I've got some great explanation. You've noticed I have the gift of gab at times. I can quantify scriptures with it. Jesus just says, hey, Paul, any time now, just confess. So here's the easy part. God, I want to confess. I get angry. And God's like, great. Why don't you go tell your spouse? Why don't you go tell your daughter? Uh, Why don't you go to others and confess? Nah, that's unnecessary. That's not needed. I don't think... And then I quote other scriptures to God about why it's on the, and God's like, Paul, you're missing. <laughs> the letter of the law is getting ahead of the spirit of the law. Follow the spirit. Follow the scripture. And so I have found that there are just times. Now, my dog, he doesn't totally understand when I confess to him. Um, but my daughters do. My daughters do. My wife does. My parents do. I have to call them back, predominantly my mom, from time to time, and say, hey, I'm sorry. Oh, it's fine. I just knew you were hungry, maybe a little tired. <laughs> you right. You right. But I want, to tell, I want to tell you. I want to tell you. Anger creates consequences that create walls. Confession. Confession. It's not an easy slope. I mean, you've got to build trust back. But confession, it reveals humility. The ability to say, I'm wrong. I was wrong. I'm going to hold off on the explanations as to why I was wrong and I am sorry. Can I tell you, it will tear the walls down and bring healing. Here's the kicker. Our pride does not want to go there, but the spirit inside leads us into humility that we can find ourselves. that any ground, all of a sudden, any ground, the workplace, the softball field, PTO meetings, HOA meetings, anywhere anxiety or anger may show up, it can become sacred ground if we humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord. And that humility will encourage and strengthen our relationships. Amen? And I'm just crazy enough to believe that the allure of gentleness is a witness to the world around us. That they will say, man, there's something about those Christ followers. That, man, I deserved anger. I deserved wrath. I should have been fired from River Falls Car Wash for wrecking a 96 Honda Civic. But, Grace, in the name of Rick Cadle, showed up and said, you are forgiven. (laughs) There's the kingdom of God on display. Can I tell you, God wants us to carry that. God wants us to carry that gentleness becomes a vessel for grace and truth, moving hearts closer to him. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that your word brings healing to our hearts. It brings healing to our souls. And come on, this is a good first step. Every eye closed, every head bowed. 
I'm going to make it even easier. You don't even have to lift your hand. You don't have to say a thing just right now. In your mind, if anger has messed some things up, confess it to the Lord right now. Just don't even say anything. Lord, you recognize every heart, every mind that may be sitting in some disappointment, discouragement, difficulty. I know I have been, God, from time to time when my anger has, has gotten the best of me, so to speak. Holy Spirit, we just confess to you we're sorry for the way we've been acting, the way we've been responding, the way we've been reacting. We got it honest in more ways than one, God. For some of us, it's what we were shown. It's what we were taught. It's our first response instead of our last response. We confess. We repent. Lord, we receive your mercy and your grace. We thank you that you transform us from the inside out. In Jesus' holy name. Let's stay in the same place just for a moment. If you need Jesus to save your life, he wants to save your life. If you need Jesus to forgive your sin, he wants to forgive your sin. If you've been hopeless, if you've been overwhelmed by shame, by fear, by the cycles of sin, Jesus is good news. Not asking you to become a member of this church, not asking you to join a team. I'm asking you right here to respond to Jesus. I'm just a vessel letting you know God sees you. He knows you. If you're ready to turn the page of your life, step into a new life and a new future with Him, which influences, make no bones about it, it influences this life and it influences the life to come. Jesus says, call upon me. Call upon me. You will be saved. Lord, we call upon you. We need your mercy. Forgive us for all of our sin. We repent. We turn to you. We thank you, Lord. We give you our past. We give you our present. We trust you with our future. And we receive your Holy Spirit. Fill us up, Lord. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.